Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Well, Brad, uh, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic to be chatting to you. And I understand that you're sitting up in uh, Darwin at the moment. Uh, how are you fearing the early stages of winter up there? Yeah, thanks, Richard. Uh, I, I think we got down to to quite a balmy 22 degrees. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I grabbed the jumper yet, but I, I have seen some some other kind of board and bread Darwin thing wearing jumper. Yeah, it's amazing in Brisbane, it's really, you know, there's been a couple of mornings, it's been like seven degrees and people go, oh my God, it's so freezing, seven degrees. But anyway, uh, you kind of acclimatize to where you are, don't you? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think um, it might take a while. When you get into the wet season, it's some of the high humidity, it's, uh, it's tough going, but now it's just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, so I lived in Cairns for four years, so I know exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, Brad, just to get things started, just tell us a little bit about your current professional responsibilities. Yeah, I'm the um, Chief Executive Officer of Energy Resources Australia. So we're a, um, a ASX-listed mining company that's primarily in rehabilitation. Uh, our our largest shareholder is Rio Tinto, so I, uh, we form part of the Rio Tinto group, uh, but we're, we're separately listed. Uh-huh. And when you say you're largely involved in rehabilitation, obviously ERA was the operator of Ranger Mine. Yeah, we operated Ranger Mine for almost or just over 40 years, actually. Um, uh, so the longest and uh, largest operating mine uh, in Australia, I think, for uranium. Right. And so now it's just that you've moved to, you know, the next stage, which is the rehabilitation stage. Yeah, we've moved. Um, so we finished operations in 2019 and we finished processing uh, the material in 2021. So January 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and since that, we've kind of progressively moved into a new chapter, which is uh, primarily rehabilitation. So we've done, we've done some rehabilitation before that, you know, concurrently with our operations, but now now we'd be characterized as primarily a rehabilitation operation. Fantastic. And, you know, Rancher um, Mine has had quite a history, 40 years of operation. Talk us through a little bit of, around that history. Yeah, it's got a, it's a, um, it's in a phenomenal location. So it's, it's in, it's surrounded by Kakadu National Park. So it's not, not in Kakadu National Park. So very, very sensitive location. Um, and as you say, quite a potted history uh, where, the Ranger mine was done to the traditional owners 40 years ago. And then there was a number of strategic interests in, in you know, sourcing uranium, uh, for, for international markets. Um, so the, the government was kind of heavily involved at that point. Um, and it's, it's kind of come full circle that we've, uh, we've gone to the end of the mine life that was kind of done through the traditional owners and we're, we're kind of repairing or healing or rehabilitating the country in partnership with the traditional. So right. Really. Right. So when you say done to them, you, what you, uh, you know, I'm assuming you meaning without their permission or without their, uh, blessing. Yeah. So the, the mine, um, the mine was opened, uh, as a, as a strategic asset for the nation, if you want to kind of, mm-hmm. 
um, against the wishes of the mirror traditional investors. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, and so whenever you kind of start a story with that kind of, that kind of event or those kind of events, it's, it can be quite a rocky relationship. Yeah. Uh, so there has been a fair journey for the mine uh, and a fair journey for the kind of local community as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, coming together with the same objective of, of rehabilitating this country, which is adjacent to Kakadu National Park. Mm-hmm. And as I understand it, this rehabilitation project is going to be world's best class and, you know, a, a real uh, a global statement about the possibilities of rehabilitation. Yeah, absolutely. It's... um. It's a phenomenal, it's a, it's a big and complex project. Um, mm-hmm. we're, um, we're rehabilitating uranium open cut, uh, mine, and we're effectively, we've put the tailings back into the pit, which is, um, which is quite a heroic effort from the teams. Uh, so it's, it's got a lot of complexity. It's in a very sensitive environment. Um, there is no one else in the world to this scale. Um, and it is such a phenomenal opportunity. We. Um, mine closure is something that Australia hasn't really done in the last 40 years, mm-hmm. opened a lot of mines and that's, you know, that's been part of our kind of national, national wealth. And it's been part of our kind of national identity in some respect. Um, we're getting to the point now that mine closure is probably one of the larger growing areas in the mine industry, given a lot of mines are starting to come to the end of their end of their life. Um, so we are, we're in pole position to do this in a way that really demonstrates that mining can coexist in a landscape. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and how long is this, uh, rehabilitation project, uh, expected to last? Yeah. So we made an announcement in February of this year that we, we expect the schedule. So there's so still, there's a bit of a range. We expect the schedule to be 2027, 2028. Um, so, so quite a ways to go. We're doing a, um, a feasibility study right now to kind of understand you know, let's put some clearer, clearer dates around that, that end point, but you're looking at that 27, 28 kind of period. Okay. And, uh, and talking specifically about ERA. So give us a sense of the size of the organization, what's your head count and, uh, and, and where are the people based and so on? Yeah, generally, uh, we're, we're at a head count of about 150 staff, roughly, you know, mm-hmm. ebb and flow. There's probably another at any given time, you know, 500 uh, to a thousand kind of contractors you know, doing various packages of work. Um, the primary base for the operation is Jabiru and, and subsequently Darwin. So mm-hmm. Darwin where, where we're headquartered. Uh, we do have some spatterings and some people based in, in other cities that provide probably mm-hmm. more specialist support, uh, to the business, uh, but, but generally we're headquartered. In Darwin. Excellent. Let's come back to, uh, ERA a little later in the conversation, but I'm always interested, Brad, in, you know, understanding your story. So tell us a little bit about you know, where you were born and mum and dad, brothers and sisters and, and growing up. Yeah, I was, I was born in Sydney. I grew up in the community of Redfern. Um, no, no brothers and sisters. Uh, and I, I, I say that's because my mum kind of had the best in the first go and but, um, uh, friends who have brothers and sisters don't share that. Uh-huh. We, I grew up in the Aboriginal community of Redfern. I'm Indigenous by background, so I, I come from a very small group called the Lulawari, uh, which is out near a place called Lund Ridge in, in New South Wales. So North okay. um, a, a bit of an interesting kind of background, actually. I grew up more in the, in the Aboriginal land rights kind of movement. Mm-hmm. 
on, on the tail end, you know, of the kind of land rights movement um, and the self-determination movement, which was really, really pioneered from, from Redfern, you know, they effectively changed the nation. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, so Redfern ended up becoming this melting pot of kind of indigenous people from all over the country who, who believed in self-determination, you know, uh, land rights, and, and I guess some really catalytic events of the time. So I, I kind of grew up in the, in the shadows of that, where we, we spent a lot of our discretionary energy on, on self-determination and on, on protest, if you want to kind of, you know, um, fighting for our our social and economic rights in, in the land. Um, and so Brad, uh, this was, even you remember this as a very young child, do you? Yeah. I remember the conversations at the dinner table and I remember, I remember protests and I remember going to a lot of, um, a lot of events and, and I guess my family had pretty deep roots in the, in the, um, self-determination kind of movement. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess more the land rights movement, which was probably prior to uh, the, the native title and the Marbos, which kind of happened in the nineties. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's, that's kind of the, the, the areas in which I grew up. I, I, um, interestingly, when one of, one of the protests that I'd been to, uh, went to when I was younger was against the Jabaluka mine. Um, and you know, it, uh, when I got introduced to the traditional owners up here it, in the translation, uh, they couldn't say that they couldn't work out the word for irony that, you know, somebody right. that the Jabaluka mine was now the head of uh, ERA, which, you know, was the beneficial owner of the, of the Jabaluka tenement. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and I mean, we jumping forward, but how was that viewed? We, we viewed as somebody who'd gone to the dark side or somebody who was an advocate and a, uh, you know, a, a, a fellow, art. how did it play out? Yeah, it's been, um. Look, by and large, the, the community, my family and, and, you know, the, the, the mining industry, in fact, um, have been incredibly supportive of my, my development, my growth, my mm. expression of my, my own leadership. Um, there, there was a couple of questions about how do you make the, how do you cross the dot or the bridge between kind of, you know, the, the inevitable disturbance of land for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. and the, you know, the cultural landscape in which mm -hmm. you're trying to protect, um. We, I, I think on balance, there is enormous value bringing indigenous thought to the mining process mm. and the way you might unlock a resource or the way you might bring a resource to life in a, in a very rich cultural landscape adds enormous value to shareholders, um, as well as stakeholders and host communities that, you know, are the, are the ones that are both beneficiaries and I guess where some of the risks of a mine development mm -hmm. so, so by and large and on balance um a number of supporters that have helped me get to where i've, where I've come today um i mean there's always one or two you know detractors and um if you i guess if your life was determined by those detractors you probably would never have taken the steps that you you needed to take so uh, yeah, very very lucky that i've got a lot of support Oh, that's awesome. And so, uh, when you were young and this conversation was happening around the dinner table and you're, you're getting involved and going along to these, uh, protests and so on, what, what did you think at that time you wanted to do when you grew up? I always, uh, I was always a very curious kind of kid and a teenager. And I, I was, I was probably that kid in the car that always asked why, 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 why. And I, I could never completely understand 
why we had mining companies effectively, and, and mining companies are, are generally good wealth generators, you know, pay really mm. good wages. There's really good contracts. They're, they're generally long-term, so they go between generations. And I could never understand why this, this wealth generation engine was continuing to kind of miss the host community. So it didn't, mm -hmm. didn't as an indigenous host community. I mean, there are plenty of host communities around the world that haven't quite, other than royalties and I guess direct benefits, and maybe some, some entry-level jobs, haven't quite harnessed the real potential of an investment. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I was always really curious about why, what was, what was the blocker? What was the stopper for that? that so problem? what sort of age were you when you were having these thoughts? Uh, 20, you know. Uh, okay. So, right. Yeah. So you, you, you'd left high school by that point. Yeah. It was kind of the later years in high school. And, uh, right. and was, I mean, one of the things my mum had always been really, really strong on, you'd need to have a good education. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, 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 and my grandfather actually spent a lot of time with me. He, he had a phenomenal work ethic, you know, and he, I guess he didn't, he didn't have the chance to go to university back, back when he was growing up, that, that opportunity wasn't there. So, um, in some respect, they said, we fought for your opportunity, but only your work ethic and your kind of behavior is the thing that's going to get him through that. Like, right. So we might've opened the door, but it's for you to kind of walk sure. Take the steps and what is it? So what happened when you finished high school then? Uh, I, I started work. Um, we, we had to contribute to the family bills. Um, so I started, I think I get an NGO, uh, children's service, an Aboriginal children's service, but, um, and then I enrolled in university concurrently, um, mm -hmm. a welfare degree, mm -hmm. uh, majoring in Aboriginal community studies, um, which, uh, you know, if I'm honest, uni for me for the first couple of years was, was a pretty fun place. Um, <laughs> I have a, have a look at my false transcript and demonstrate all the further fun at uni. Mine does too. Mine does too. Not, not a lot of focus on the uni. <laughs> couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had, um, I, I found out actually that I was going to be a dad when I was, when I was 21. All right. Was, which was young and I felt very young when I found that out. Um, mm. and it was a, it was a catalytic event in my life where, mm -hmm. where I, you know, in nine months time, I was going to be responsible for someone. Yeah. And so that's a pivot point. You can see it in my transcript. You can see the, right. you, know, you can see the results start to pull when I turned 21. Yeah. <laughs> you're going to have to feed someone soon and you're going to have to provide for them. But, uh, so, so there was a. It was a bit of a big realization on that. Well, just put it. You stepped up to the plate. Yeah. Yeah. Good idea. And so at what point did you, you sort of shift across that cross to doing the law degree? I, I worked in the government. Uh, so I went from the NGO into the, into the government, um, department and I, I finished off the welfare degree, but I'd, I'd always had this attraction to the law. Um, mm -hmm. I, not, not so much the, the policy of the law, if you want to put it that way, but more the, more how the law was applied. So I'm um, growing up as a kid, I, I noticed I had indigenous friends and non -in, like indigenous friends and family, I guess, and non-indigenous friends. Um, and I would go, I would go somewhere with my indigenous family and friends and generally would attract the interest of the law, you know, the, the culture. Yeah. 
generally not walk past a group of indigenous youths. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you'd get stopped, you'd get asked what you were doing, you'd get, um, you know, you, who your mum and dad is, who you kind of, what, what were you doing there? Even if it was something as simple as watching a movie. Um, and I, I kind of noticed that when I was with my non-indigenous friends, those, those same police officers, cause you, you know what they look like, I would walk straight past your group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I kind of saw this distinction in how the law was applied. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of thought, and I got, got curious again and thought, if you want to know how this thing works, you better learn mm-hmm. because it seems to be used against you at the moment. And I am, I guess, against your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, that was always the attraction to the law. Like, um, I probably just didn't think I could do it. Uh, Let's see. Was it the, I want to understand how it works or was it that I want to change? I want to be a catalyst for change. I think I'd always, I'd always wanted to be a catalyst for change. Just, you know, every, everyone wants to kind of carve out some, some form of change. I, I guess one, one thing I noticed actually, I had a, um, I had a cousin who was, who was, he got arrested. Um, and when we were at the, we we're at the police station and before his uncle was a lawyer, um, and before, before his, um, uncle turned up. Police were really, really derogatory to us as mm-hmm. uh, they were kicking us out of the lobby. They were, you know, out of the reception. Effectively disrespectful. Now, I- I'm not saying we were, we were the best candidates as young kids. <laughs> uh, we, we could have been a bit cheeky and, and I was sure. The, I watched his uncle walk in, who was a lawyer, um, and the complete tone of the place changed mm. the, and and obviously he was asking very pointed questions, you mm. know, is he under the powers of arrest and all these, all these things that kind of alien to me, but made a fundamental change to how those police treated the, the, the people who were there and including, including his nephew. Um, and that was kind of one point where I thought, if you know this stuff, you can, you can not just protect yourself, but you mm. can actually create it far, far better. And I, I probably had. I probably hadn't completely appreciated how far the law had stretched, you know, mm-hmm. in our daily lives, like mm-hmm. everything we do has some component of law, but, um, so that was, that was probably the catalyst to want to do. Mm. Okay. And, uh, and so how did your career evolve after that? I, um, I was, I went, I got quite involved in, in studying law. I'd got into mooting, which is, you know, mock trolling yeah. and that kind of stuff. So I'd, I'd got a, um, I built a few relationships throughout the kind of campus and, you know, the, the, the law kind of academia, if you want to kind of put it that way, at least at UNSW. Um, and it landed me an interview with the prime minister's office to work in the media, the media team. Um, so it was, it was a new prime minister, it was prime minister Rudd. Um, and it, it was an, a very entry level role. So it, mm-hmm. it, it was what was called a media assistant. Um, and effectively it was about, um, and, and I was kind of a bit curious again and kind of said, well, why do you want a graduate lawyer? Like, why don't you want a journalist, you know, just work in the media team. And, and what they were effectively looking for was, um, someone who could condense five or six newspapers or all this material down to, you know, the, the, the subject matter part mm-hmm. of kind of the key kind of messages that were coming out mm-hmm. and, and their view was that a lawyer is trained to kind of get to the, the substance of mm-hmm. 
matter. And that was the kind of skill set they wanted. So, so the intention for you, Brett, was never to actually work as a lawyer or this kind of fortuitously kind of came on your radar and you said, oh, I'll give that a crash. Yeah. I'd never, I'd never really danced with the idea of going, working in a fan firm and kind of following the trod path to become a mm-hmm. practicing. I, I ended up doing the practicing, like getting a, getting admitted, um, mm-hmm. but not necessarily getting a practicing certificate. Um, mm-hmm. and this, this opportunity kind of came along and I was like, all oh, right, you know, um, I, I had to, it was a point in my career where I had to kind of economically go backwards. Actually, I, I lost pay cause I was a manager in the government at the time mm-hmm. going into a media assistance role. Um, and so you, you kind of go, fo- go backward to go forward. You mm-hmm. And that was, that was a point where I had to kind of, I mean, economically I had to manage it, which, which was important, mm-hmm. you know, I had kids. Um, and, but the experience and the work and the mm-hmm. that were going to come from it were, were phenomenal. And, and when was the timing of that around the apology? I started a week after the apology. Actually, I went to the right. apology, um, and I, I went through the PM's office on the day of the apology. Actually, right. Um, but uh, yeah, I was I, I physically started the week after. Yeah, I I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and uh, you know, we're talking about Kevin Rudd, and I know that Kevin Rudd, uh, you know, he has his detractors, and I know that like all of us, he's got his strengths and weaknesses, and his uh, his. Uh, you know, idiosyncrasies. But I, I said to this person that I was talking to, the one thing that I most admire about him was the apology. And I remember sitting and watching it live on TV, actually crying, uh, because it was so powerful, um, and such an important step to make. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was, um, I mean, look, I, I thought it was the right step for the nation. Obviously I think mm-hmm. it's kind of an, a maturing of the nation. Um, not, not to say there's not more work to do, but, um, it, you know, we have these catalytic events that we, you know, it, there, there's always a cohort of people who say it leads to all of these litigation claims mm-hmm. and these, you shouldn't accept responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I think all those arguments were put to rest, well to rest once, once it occurred and I thought, mm-hmm. And I thought the nation came together. I thought, um, you know, the, you know, and there's been a number of examples where the nation's kind of come together. Mm. That was, uh, uplifting. Absolutely. Definitely. And so, uh, how did your career, you know, move forward from there then? Yeah. So I hung around, um, I spent about 12 months, I think in, in that office and, mm-hmm. and we had the GFC, which was probably one of the biggest learning points of my career and, and kind of hard and really understanding the power of that office in a national crisis effectively. Um, and also, you know, the power of the market in that, you know, the, that the, the prime minister doesn't control everything and mm. incredibly powerful person, but that doesn't, doesn't control investors and doesn't control the market and doesn't, um, so it kind of, it kind of gave me some, uh, understanding. I ended up going to the new South Wales government after, after about 12 months, which mm-hmm. It was a bit fortuitous because we did the national stimulus in the, in the Commonwealth, but then when I went to the state, we implemented the national stimulus. So, so I kind of, in some respect, followed the national stimulus through and then, and then actually built, you know, had to work out the regulatory system to build the school halls, to build the housing, to, you know, to do all this really quickly to kind of support the, the economic, uh, well, to stable for recession really, but, um, 
So I, I kind of followed the work or the opportunity and ended up um, at that stage in the New South Wales Planning Minister's Office, who was uh, Minister Christina Keneally and um, mm-hmm. subsequently became Premier. So mm-hmm. I, I stayed with her for that. Okay. And then, uh, and then what took you from government into uh, working for Rio? Yeah, I, so when you're in the planning system, I mean, one of the, one of the biggest components of the planning system is major projects. And I was looking after all major projects, which uh, was all the really big residential developments. It was all the motels, it was all the things, um, and, and effectively all the mines. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were dealing with, um, uh, I think it was about 300 environmental assessments, you know, across that kind of portfolio. Um, and I, I ended up visiting, um, a couple of mines and I couldn't, I, Whenever you work in politics, you end up, you meet with both sides. So you meet with the kind of environmental groups. And then I guess you meet with the pro miners, if you want to kind of, and, and the environmental groups were kind of saying, why would you give a 25 year approval to a mine? Like what's the, and, and the, and the mining groups are saying, well, we need investment certainty. I couldn't really understand investment certainty, you know, and so effectively what, what the environmental groups are saying is where. We're being held to standards 25 years old, mm-hmm. you know, this, this idea that what we know now should be applied. Um, and I remember visiting one mine where we looked at a, uh, a big drag line. It was on a coal line and, and I was standing next to one of the guys and he said, oh, what do you reckon that drag line's worth? Like in, in dollar terms, you know? Um, and I was like, I don't know, actually. And in, in my head, I thought about you know, maybe, maybe 20 mil, maybe 50 mil, maybe something. Uh, and he goes, oh, it's $200 million or something, something, something that was just blew my mind that this, this piece of kit was, was so expensive. Um, and for me, it became crystal clear what investment certainty was. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're kind of rolling out the checkbook for a $200, $200 million commitment or for more, notwithstanding mm-hmm. all of the other money that would be required to unlock that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it was this catalytic moment that helped me understand the, the need for certainty. And it also. It also helped me understand my deficiencies in understanding the mining framework. So, um, it, it again, got me curious, what don't I understand here and what don't I know, um, which kind of triggered the, the, the thinking and the kind of transition into, into Rio, um, into the improvals team actually. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the thing, looking at your LinkedIn profile that I, I'm impressed by is that you stepped into that and you thought, well, you know, I, I really want to know my craft. So you went and did a master's in mining engineering. Yeah, absolutely. I was, um, I, I've never, I've never done university degrees to, for the paper, like I've right. never, never done them to be able to put them on the wall and say, I've done it. Like it was, yes. it was more always wanting to understand. And, and I didn't really know what made mining investment go and what made it stop. And I kind of, and I kind of go back to thinking if I want host communities or indigenous communities to harness the full benefit of a mine, I kind of need to know what makes it go on stock and I need to be able to match those two together. Um, so, so I kind of went into this mining engineering degree to understand these concepts of net present value, which were completely alien to me at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, net present value, safety management, risk, um, you know, mineral economics, mineral processing principles. Like there was a whole, there was a whole world that kind of opened up about how you might bring an all body to life. And I guess, you know, what, what actually drives an all body, you know, gray kind of transport, like a whole range of things. Um, and it, it really helped me understand 
how I could get the maximum impact out of my role in mining, even if it wasn't sitting on a truck or a digger or a mm. mining operation. It was how do I get the maximum benefit by understanding the thing that makes this work and how my role connects. So, mm. And at, at what point, I mean, because you joined Rio in more of a community management type uh, role, and then you stepped into operational role, and then obviously stepped into a CEO role. At what point did you sort of get excited about it? Well, I want to actually drive the ship. Yeah, that's, um, I was always, I, I mean, you, I've made a number of transitions in my career. So kind of, you know, NGO to government, government to politics, politics to kind of mining. Um, and every time I've made them, they've been incredibly nerve wracking. Like, you, know, you, you, cause you're anxious. You don't know whether of course. that he can do this. Um, so I'd, I'd kind of really worked on honing my skills in that community and stakeholder space. And I guess, you know, the, the, um, uh, the external kind of influences on a mine, you know, government, communities, mm. regulators, you know, experts, um, scientific experts, et cetera. And, and I, I'd kind of thought I'm getting into the technical expert here as in, you know, and that's not a bad pathway to take, mm -hmm. but it ends up locking you because mm -hmm. you, you're called on for so many technical kind of matters. Um, and so I thought. Rio Tinto is a mining company, not a, not a community relations company. Now community, mm -hmm. very important role, but it's not a community relations company. Mm -hmm. And I was going to hit a ceiling very, very soon. If I didn't make the transition to what I would call the core of the company. So I was at, I was at that manager level and, um, and I thought if I don't make the transition now, it's very hard to do it at the general manager level and almost impossible to do it at the manager director level. Mm -hmm. uh, because you're kind of too far in, and there's not many MD community relations in any mining company. Um, so I, I kind of saw that I was coming to the end of a road, um, and it would have been a stimulating one, but it was always, it was always kind of saying, you've got to bring indigenous thought to the center of a business or your unique style or your unique brand or your unique competitive advantage to the center of the business. Um, and for me, that was operations because. Mm -hmm. I always had the ability to go back into that CSP kind of function if, if operations didn't really work out. Um, but I, I had this world to explore in operations that actually, um, that actually is, it's pretty exciting if I'm honest. Oh, for sure. And, and so, uh, you're in Rio, you're stepping into these operational roles. So how did the ERA opportunity come on your radar? Yeah, Rio, um. Rio provides secondees to ERA as, as senior leadership and, mm -hmm. and the opportunity was kind of, it, it kind of came up quite suddenly and quite quickly. And I kind of had to make a decision pretty quickly, which seems to be the way, you know, mm -hmm. um, what's the, what's the word? Luck is when preparedness meets opportunity or something. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so for me, the chance to, um, do all the things ERA is doing, you know, you'll, you get to rehabilitate Kakadu effectively an area of Kakadu. Uh, you get to do that in partnership with traditional owners. You get to, you get to understand a cultural landscape and understand a future for the company in that cultural landscape. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you get the chance to lead an ASX listed business, um, for the benefit of all shareholders. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me, it was, it was a. It was a phenomenal opportunity to broaden my skill set um, mm -hmm. and broaden my kind of 
my using whether it was my stakeholder engagement experience, but with with shareholders who who hold a special place in any company. It, it, a shareholder is fundamentally different from a stakeholder. These people have committed funds to your business and your future, and your um, and they they ride the highs and the lows with you. So, um, for me, I I thought it was an unmatched opportunity with it within the Rio network of opportunities. Given you know working in a big global mining company is is always great, but you never get the chance to have the you know the the freedom, the chance to shape a culture, the chance to deal with your, your listing rules to kind of operate like a, like a mid team liner with kind of global backing, if you want to kind of put it that way, um, you know, global benefits or global continuities, continuity of service or whatever those. Um, so I think we're, I think we're in quite a unique position that we can, um, take all the, all the benefits of being a mid tier and being kind of agile and making decisions for the business, but we can actually lean into the of, of mining, um, which, which would never be replicated in a mid tier. So, um, it was kind of an opportunity I couldn't refuse once I'm around. Fantastic. And so relatively new into the role, uh, came in as acting now, uh, in the CEO role since February. So one of the things that you're excited about for, you know, the foreseeable future for ERA? Yeah, we, we get a, we have a fundamental opportunity to earn our right to grow. Mm-hmm. And, and the way we're, the way we can do that is by undertaking rehabilitation of a scale and complexity that has not been done on the planet. Um, now, when I think about a lot of the market fundamentals in front of us, you know, we Closure is a fast growing area for, you know, there, there are minds coming to the end of their life. So the expertise in closure is going to be really, really important in the next, in the next decade, two decades, as, as those minds kind of come, come to the end of their, their operational life, for lack of a better word. Um, I, I think ERA, um, could harness a lot better, the agility of being a mid tier kind of size with a global shareholder as a parent. Um, so we can, we can lean into the network, uh, to get resources that we would not, not otherwise have in house. And that's, that's pretty exciting. I don't know that we've ever, um, completely recognized that as part of our competitive advantage. Um, and so, so for me, I think we, we have the chance to really cast this organization or this company in, in this competitive light of an emerging kind of industry or an emerging kind of opportunity around a particular rehab. Um, but with the, with the, the global strength and the global network of, a, of an entity like Rio Tinto is our major, mm-hmm. major um, and, you know, also, uh, supporting the minority or all minority shareholder interests as well of that, you know, working in, in the interest of all shareholders. But, um, so I, I think it is, it is, uh, there, there's no doubt it's a complex company, you know, because of those arrangements, mm-hmm. I think the opportunities far outweigh the risks. Mm-hmm. And so it's now 2027, 2028, the rehabilitation has been completed successfully. What happens after that? Yeah, well, that's a, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. We, um, I, I think our future rests in our shareholders and stakeholders hands, you know, mm-hmm. we, uh, we need to convince 
our shareholders and our stakeholders that we, we've earned a right beyond Ranger. Mm-hmm. We've a, a life beyond Ranger, if you want to kind of put it that way. Um, we have, uh, yeah, we have the, we have the Jabaluka mining, uh, or the Jabaluka mining lease as a, as an asset, which is, which is a phenomenal all body. Um, we, we cannot recreate the circumstances that the Jabaluka mine would be done to traditional owners. It would need to be done with the traditional owners. So, mm-hmm. but ERA entered into a long-term care and maintenance agreement where we said we would never develop that T1 all body without the consent and support mm-hmm. of our traditional owners. So, um, I mean, I'm incredibly proud to be a part of a company that not only entered that agreement, but actually lived to it. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't try and kind of, you know, break it down by its words and kind of live to its intent. Um, I, I do think demonstrating world-class rehab is, is a way of having a dialogue about the cultural kind of landscape or, you know, the, the, the future of ERA, because I think it gives us competitive advantage where it doesn't really exist at the moment, mm-hmm. so either to do other rehabilitation projects, um, it gives us a legacy to show that mining is a temporary land use and can be repaired. Um, it probably gives us some really good learnings about the way you open a mine affects how you close it, um, which probably weren't really thought about 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Probably, how do we better plan the opening of a mine? Um, and so, I, I mean, I, I think our future rests in, in our shareholders and stakeholders hands, but we have, we have everything to win by doing this work really well. Mm. And Brad, we've spoken a lot uh, today about business and career and, and so on and so forth, but to sort of wind the conversation up, uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, what, what do you get up to when you're not working? What keeps the petrol tank full? Yeah, I, I really like fishing. Um, right. I lived about 10 years in Weeper and I've brought my boat over here to Darwin, which um, I haven't been able to take it out yet, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> so I, I like fishing. I, I love rugby league, a big tragic Rabbitohs supporter. Um, so I, I watched them and, uh, ride, ride the waves with them every weekend. Uh, so I, uh, I, I love hanging around the family and getting out, out and about, um, you know, Darwin, Darwin for us has a lot of multicultural influences and mm-hmm. you're a lot of kind of East Timorese, Asian. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we get out to the markets on the weekends and, uh, and we, we love kind of being part of a broader community. Yeah. Uh, I, I got a couple of, um, of, you know, idiosyncrasies. I, I bought a Mustang for my Sims. Uh, right. A new one. A new one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's 2019. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a bit of fun. Um, yeah. I, I, I think, um, yes, yeah, so I, I enjoy kind of, you know, uh, playing around and you know, getting, uh, you know, in, having, having fun time on the weekend. Oh, uh, that's awesome. And uh, you mentioned, you mentioned had, you had one child very early, you know, at what was it? 21. At 21. Uh, so you've got a few more kids since then. I do. I got three girls. Okay. Yeah. So they're, um, uh, phenomenal, phenomenal children. The youngest one's 13. Um, and, uh, so two of, two have left the nest. Right. Um, the oldest one's in uni, the middle one's in. Okay. Um, so we're probably the first complete year into them not being at home. Right. Obviously we've got the youngest one. Um, so, so we're, we're working through that and we're getting the, I think we're looking at them coming to Darwin for a visit. Right. 
their holiday period. I think we're, but we're, we're also coming to the recognition that they probably get to the point where they got their own lives as well. Yeah. Hanging around with the parents isn't as cool as. <laughs> and through the Rabbitohs, have you ever met Russell Crowe? I've never met Russell Crowe, actually. I've met a lot of the Rabbitohs, um, you know, the, the CEOs and stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of Russell and I guess what he's done for yeah. the club, with the club. Um, but no, I haven't, haven't met him. Oh, fair enough. Well, look, Brad, I really appreciate your time today. Before we wrap it up, is there anything else that you were hoping to talk about or mention uh, before we uh, close this out? No, I think, look, thanks for the opportunity. I think, um, you know, really uh, ERA is a, a phenomenal business and, and really, um, you know, our future is ours. Uh, so I, I, you know, very, um, very energised about what we can achieve in, in kind of the Northern Territory and in the, in the national landscape on rehabilitation. Uh, but really just want to say thanks for your time. Oh, look, that's excellent, Brad. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. I wish you all the very best and uh, I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Have a great afternoon. You too. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. We frequently feature guests from organisations we are currently recruiting to build the company brand as an attraction strategy for candidates. If you would like to promote your organisation's brand as an employer of choice, please contact Richard directly on 0403 588 517 or via email richardt at arateexecutive.com.au. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.